All right, well, good morning. Um, I'm Andrew Sharp. I'm an elder here. So it is my uh, privilege to um, preach this morning. And it's, it's especially a treat to do it outside on a, just a beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, we're continuing uh, our series looking at um, Acts, the book of Acts, chapter by chapter. Um, and this morning we're looking at, uh, at Acts 6. And you know, I, I've, heard, I've heard people say uh, that they believe in God and they maybe even believe in Jesus, but they reject organized religion. I, I don't know if any of you have ever heard anybody say that they did not care for organized religion, um, but I've heard it. And the implication is that organized religions, they tell you what to believe and subtly or not so subtly try to tell you how to live your life. And in our postmodern culture, we're supposed to be fiercely independent. We're, we're supposed to, to self-actualize, or at least we're kind of told by our culture that we should be doing that. And, I mean, who is more admired than, than a self-made man or woman? You know, we want to be independent as, as much as possible. And organized religion kind of cuts against the grain of that. And I think a lot of times people will call themselves spiritual. I mean, maybe you've heard people describe themselves as, you know, saying, oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And I think by spiritual, often folks mean that they believe in God or, or some undefined creative force that may or may not interact with us as individuals. But deep down, their faith construct is largely their own. It's their own design. And, you know, we may be okay with that. You know, we may say, hey, if you find comfort or inspiration from your individual uh, spirituality, more power to you. And I think a lot of that is born from people being hurt by others in a church context. And I think there's an inclination when that happens is to think of it as the church that's doing the hurting rather than an individual who says or does an unkind thing. Oftentimes, and Matt mentioned this a few weeks ago, the culture of a particular church can do harm when members or attenders grow to think that they're not experiencing faith in the way they're told they should. They feel like they're doing it wrong. Or maybe they're told they're doing it wrong. 
So I think for a lot of those reasons, there's a, a, a suspicion these days of organized religion. And yet, in the first half of Acts 6, we see how necessary it is, how the absence of stru- structure in this growing church can be very problematic. The last few weeks uh, in going through Acts, we've seen a supernatural healing to surprising and possibly supernatural deaths. We've seen impassioned expressions of the gospel, and we've seen an angel of the Lord orchestrating a jailbreak. And then we get to Acts 6 in the first half of it. And we see a church that can't manage to feed their elderly in a fair way. Much like last week with Acts 5, there are two fairly distinct halves of Acts 6, so I'm going to take them separately. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, these are the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, who was a proselyte from Antioch. And I'll explain that in a moment. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. Then the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, have your way with this time as we consider your word. Help us to understand more deeply your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So what happens in verses 1 through 7, we see the early church is starting to take off. Uh, On Pentecost, 3,000 people became disciples of Jesus. In Acts 4, we're told that the number who believed was 5,000. In Acts 5, we see even more people join this movement. Despite persecution, this this early church was growing like crazy. And with growth, predictably, there were problems. And here we're told that the Hellenists are complaining that their widows are receiving an unfair daily distribution. That is, less food at mealtimes as compared with the Hebrew widows. To understand how the problem is addressed, we need to understand who the two groups are. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Palestinian Jews who had adopted 
elements of Greek culture and they probably didn't speak much Aramaic. The Hebraic Jews were Jews who probably did speak Aramaic with Greek as a second language. Greek was, um, in that culture, it was kind of like English is today in its predominance. Um, A lot of people spoke it at least to some degree. So you might ask, why were there so many widows that a fair distribution of food would even be an issue? Well, very likely it was because Jews were dispersed among quite a number of countries. And as people aged, they wanted to come back to Jerusalem so that when they died, they could be buried in or around Jerusalem and and presumably near the temple. Often, husbands would predecease their wives and you'd be left with a sizable number of widows from other countries living in Jerusalem who did not have their families around them and had difficulty making ends meet. And supporting the widows was actually enough of a problem that uh, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, Paul gives Timothy a considerable amount of advice as to how best to administer assistance to widows. So, the apostles needed to take some kind of action. As verse 2 tells us, the apostles, understandably, wanted to focus their time and energy on preaching the gospel, and they recognized that they could not do that and handle the daily distribution of food among so many widows. And, and churches of any size have to deal with those kinds of issues. During my terms as an elder here, there have been a lot of really heavy issues that the elders, the the board is called session, if you've ever heard that term. Um, There are a lot of heavy issues that elders are called upon to deal with. You know, how best to express the gospel to our church, how best to reach out to our community, how best to grow people spiritually. It's, It's impossible to take, to undertake that kind of responsibility and still say, um, take care of our magnificent church property. I mean, that's a sizable task. Um, If you've spent any time on our grounds, there are a lot of buildings and there's a lot of land. And our board of trustees is absolutely essential to the functioning of our church. God bless our trustees. And in the same way, caring for the practical needs of our congregation, providing meals and resources to folks who are ill or going through a crisis, that is a critical function of a church. And again, that's not something that the Board of Elders can can take on and still fulfill its primary role. And so God bless our board of deacons who care so magnificently for 
our congregation. To a great extent, rejecting organized religion is, it's basically like rejecting having a faith family. There's, there is precious little that can be done without any structure. And often, in the absence of structure, in the absence of a faith family, there's almost no accountability. So, how did the early church handle this? They did what wise leaders do. They delegated. They needed to assign the task to people who would fulfill this task well. They, they delegated, and they did it thoughtfully. They didn't just point to random disciples and say, all right, widow duty, you, 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 not you. Put your hand down. You, you, you. They chose men who had integrity, men of good repute, who were full of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit empowers and guides people in any kind of ministry and people who are wise. They chose Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, who were told was a proselyte, which means he was a converted Jew, from Antioch. Luke is very, Luke who writes Acts, very specific. He is all about the details, and he gives us all the names. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Andrew, those are all Greek names. What gives? There are two groups here. Yes, they were all Hellenic Jews on the committee. Did the Hebraic Jews feel snubbed? No, we're told that the arrangement pleased everyone. So even though they had this issue between the two groups, such was the goodwill between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenic Jews that the Hebraic Jews didn't demand representation on this committee. Now, this group of men who were assigned the task of caring for widows, was not they were not described as deacons, per se. Um, the Greek of Scripture doesn't use that word, but functionally that's what they were, because they were assigned the task of meeting felt needs within the congregation, and they were separated distinguished in their work from that of the apostles. So this group of folks taking care of the widows is typically regarded as the first board of deacons. And the number of disciples, we're told, continued to multiply. And 
you think, well, it's kind of a nice story, but why does Luke take half a chapter to go through this kind of mundane internal issue? And the reason is because it happened. It mattered to him that the early church is working out their issues thoughtfully and cooperatively. And then we get to the second half of Acts 6. And it reads, And Stephen, by the way, um, Stephen appears in what Christmas carol? Someone said King Wenceslas. That's right. It's that Stephen. He made it into the Christmas carol. He doesn't appear that much in scripture, but there was a feast of Stephen. So whoever said that, you get 50 points, which you can cash in after the sermon for a hearty handshake. (laughs) And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, and the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him, and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel is a weird way to end the chapter. So we have Stephen, who was just introduced in the first half of Acts 6 as one of the people who's caring for widows, and yet here he is doing great signs and wonders among the people. I mean, that's apostle stuff, right? And it was, because there is no compartmentalization when it comes to sharing the gospel. There is no compartmentalization when it comes to speaking the gospel and sharing it. Not then and not now. And Stephen was pretty bold in what he was saying. And we don't get any quotes of what he was saying that caused him to be seized and brought before the council. But you can kind of get the gist based on the allegations against him. And you can understand why it didn't land well on his audience. Interestingly, the synagogues that Stephen had been speaking to were predominantly Hellenic. Greek-speaking, like him. So he's talking to people, he's talking to uh, churches that were populated by people who had come to Jerusalem from other areas. He clearly wants to tap into a larger audience. 
and they accuse him of speaking against the temple and against the law and suggesting that Jesus would destroy the temple and change the law in some fashion. And it's all eerily similar to the allegations that were made against Jesus, right down to the false witnesses. Now, to the Jews, there were two things that were especially precious. The temple, where God could truly be worshipped, and the law, which was understood as being unchanging. And yet, here we have Stephen suggesting that their faith in the law and the temple, if, if not misplaced, is markedly changed because Jesus was the fulfillment of both. And that was extremely inflammatory rhetoric. Especially in Jerusalem. And in seizing Stephen, the Jewish authorities didn't really have to worry about popular opinion. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you saw how after Peter healed the beggar, he was brought before the authorities, but the people held him in high regard, and so they just let him go. And last week, we see the apostles arrested, but again, because popular opinion sided with them, the authorities grudgingly let them go, but that is not what's happening here. Popular opinion is quite against Stephen, and that just goes to show how aggressively he was expressing what it meant that Jesus came and fulfilled the law. The gospel, even while it's good news to the world, and as Christians we believe it's the best news, that Jesus Christ died to atone for the sins of humankind, and then he rose from the dead, to reconcile us to a perfect and holy God. Great news to us, or to many of us. But it's not received as good news to a lot of people in our day and age. And to many, it's downright offensive for a number of reasons. One is that it suggests that there is one path to reconciliation with God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That strikes people as arrogant, or many people. And also a basic assumption of Christianity is that humans, all of us, are sinful. And our sinfulness necessarily separates us from a perfect and holy God. And a lot of people don't want to hear that they're sinful. They don't want to embrace a religion or a faith where that's the message. We're all immersed 
in a culture that worships at the altar of self-esteem. And even when a person commits some grievous act, and you see this in the news with some regularity, they will often, often insist that, that they're a good person. Maybe they made bad choices, but we shouldn't define them by the bad choices they've made because deep down they're good. Christianity says, and, and Jesus said, nobody's good but God alone. Nobody. So as, as Christians, we have to recognize our great need for a savior in order to pay for our inherent sinfulness. And a lot of people just reject the idea that they have that need to begin with. And they reject that the, the idea that they are not good, basically misunderstanding what it means to be good in the sense that God is good. And our culture is very uncomfortable with the idea of sin. It sounds judgy and almost an old-timey concept. But however offensive the gospel is to people in our day and age, what Stephen was saying in those synagogues was really offensive. Even if we don't know exactly the way he said it, you'll see in the next chapter that Stephen pulls no punches when he's talking to the council. And at the end of Acts 6, we hear that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. Was Luke just saying that, that Stephen was kind of dreamy? Ladies. I suspect not. Rather, that, that seeming transfiguration sort of underscores the weight and power of his message. Remember, in Scripture, angels, when they appeared, were often extremely alarming to people, if not downright terrifying, even when they were giving good news. So what's the takeaway from Acts 6, this two-part, almost like an... 6A and 6B. We see a rapidly going church, growing church dealing with an administrative issue. The Hellenic widows not getting enough food as compared to the Hebraic widows. And we see it resolved through wise delegation of that function. It seems very mundane, but Luke gives us the details. And then we see one of those deacons, Stephen, recognizing the implications of what this new movement means, what Jesus Christ meant, his resurrection, what it meant. We see him 
kick in the hornet's nest as hard as he possibly can. And we see him do it to a number of synagogues that Luke lists by name. Remember, Luke is giving us a history of the new church. This is not a, um, it's not like a manifesto or, or philosophical paper that Luke is writing. He is laying this out as history through his specificity, through his details. And that should be enormously encouraging to us to be able to look back on the book of Acts and see that it's written by someone who was setting down history, historical facts. And it's also encouraging to me, and maybe it is to you, to be reminded that the members of the early church understood their faith to be grounded on the person of Jesus Christ, who people had seen and heard both before his death and after. Stephen knows he's putting himself at risk by what he is saying in these churches and what he's going to say to the Sanhedrin in the next chapter. And he knows he's not just putting himself at risk, but also the church membership, the apostles, the disciples, everyone. People do not willingly put themselves and others to that kind of risk. Risk of death over a myth or a fable. The only reason for Stephen to risk his life and for the apostles and disciples to risk their lives would be if what they believed was factually true. The events in Acts happened thousands of years ago. And they may seem very disconnected from our present age. We haven't seen Jesus Christ in the flesh. We aren't even given a physical description in scripture of what Jesus looked like, which kind of drives me crazy, but we're not. And he may feel very remote to us. C.S. Lewis wrote about how faith was like a wave. It undulates. Undulates is a great word. Uh, it comes from the Latin root unda, which means wave. So my, somewhere my Latin teacher's really proud of me for working that in. But it just means faith has its high points and low points. And when we are experiencing, experiencing the low points, we can turn to the book of Acts and see decisions and actions and words of people for whom Jesus was not remote. We can remind ourselves that our own faith is not built upon a fable or a myth, but on some very amazing things that happened and that were witnessed and documented. So let that be a reassurance for you. We all experience peaks and troughs in our faith. But let the detail and the history of Acts and the, and the, the immediacy with which it was documented 
Let that reassure you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess that for many of us, a lot of times, the events that we read in Scripture seem a million miles away and a million years away. Help us to to understand from books like Acts that as incredible as some of the things were that are written down, they were written down with the intention of documenting what actually happened. That this was something that was not remote to the people, the disciples, the apostles. Help that reassure our hearts and feed us when we need it. In Jesus' name, amen.